There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. That was 16 years ago tonight. Some of Obama's pronouncements hold up better than others. Just saying. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW, Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI. Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but today it's me again. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. Always happy to uh, jump in when called on by Brad and Desi. So we're in a very strange period in history. I can't even imagine what historians will say when they look back and reflect on 2020. I just know that it's worse than anything I ever envisioned for the year that should epitomize clarity. In our case, foresight is anything but 2020. This is usually the time of the year of the, well, of a four-year cycle when we're preparing for or are already in the throes of our political conventions. The clip I played at the open of the show was from July 27, 2004, when most of the world was introduced to then-Illinois State Senator Barack Obama. Just four years later, he'd win the Democratic nomination himself and go on to become our first African-American president. I guess it's a good thing I just report the news and don't predict it, because I'd never in a million years guess where we'd be today, with an incumbent in the Oval Office basically stoking a race war and sending federal goons out to American cities to put down mostly peaceful protests. So here's what's happening as we approach the end of July 2020. Let's start with the global coronavirus pandemic. Now, I'm based in Florida now anointed the global epicenter. Yeah, Florida recorded 9,300 new coronavirus cases on Sunday, passing New York as the state with the second most infections. Florida now has 423,855 confirmed cases, second only to California, with 448,497 as of Sunday afternoon. New York is number three with 415,827. Here in Florida, we added more than 10,000 cases a day in July, while California added 8,300 in New York, just 700. 
But despite the surge, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, DeSantis has rejected imposing a statewide mask requirement and continues to insist that public schools must reopen in August. New York still has recorded the most COVID-19 deaths with more than 32,000. Florida has had nearly 6,000 fatalities. Nationwide, the pandemic has claimed about 147,000 lives. Unfortunately, the government is moving nowhere nearly as fast in dealing with the virus or in helping with relief. Administration officials said Sunday that the Senate Republicans' new coronavirus relief proposal will be unveiled on Monday. This after the original plan was to release it last Thursday. Allegedly, this new plan will include another round of $1,200 stimulus checks. White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow said that in addition to the checks, the legislation would extend but reduce extra unemployment benefits. The Republican plan is expected to cost about a trillion dollars. The House, under Democratic control, already approved a $3 trillion proposal in May, the HEROES Act. It includes new stimulus checks, more money for coronavirus testing and contract tracing, and renewal of the $600 per week in extra unemployment benefits, which will expire at the end of the month, which is the end of this week. The two sides are pretty far apart on just about everything. Democrats are in the three to four trillion dollar neighborhood. Republicans want to keep it closer to one trillion dollars. In the Republican plan, there is no monetary assistance for state or local governments. Democrats want close to a trillion dollars. The Democrats' education money is four times what Republicans are offering. And in the Republican plan, the unemployment insurance is paired way back. Yeah, there's a long way to go on every front, and yet there has been no contact between the administration and congressional Democrats since Friday. This week will be the beginning of bipartisan talks, which will likely continue through the middle of August. The Trump administration's deployment of unidentified militarized federal law enforcement agents to put down protests in Portland and a few other cities has served to re-energize the protests against police brutality and racial injustice. Over the weekend, police and protesters clashed in cities from Los Angeles, California to Richmond, Virginia, as demonstrators expressed anger over arrests made by these unmarked, unidentified federal agents around the Portland Federal Courthouse. In Portland on Sunday, the crowd swelled to about a thousand who gathered for the 60th straight night of protests in the city since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis police custody. In Seattle, at least 47 protesters were arrested on Saturday night alone. The Department of Homeland Security has said a response team from U.S. Customs and Border Protection will be sent to Seattle to remain on standby to help protect federal facilities. There were protests throughout the weekend in other cities, in Aurora, Colorado, Oakland, California, Louisville, Kentucky, and other cities. In Austin, Texas, a man was killed on Saturday after shots were fired into a crowd of protesters. A suspect there is in custody. And if all that's not enough, the tropics are active. Hurricane Hannah hit the Texas Gulf Coast on Saturday and continued to batter the coast with high winds and heavy rains on Sunday. Now a tropical depression, Hannah dumped more than a foot of rain on parts of South Texas and northeastern Mexico. Some patients in healthcare facilities were airlifted out of communities along the U.S.-Mexico border. But officials there are still cautioning people to seek help 
despite fear of exposure to COVID-19. The CEO of Red Cross Texas Gulf Coast chapter said, yes, coronavirus provides risk, but so does flood water. So does not having electricity. So does not having required medications. Now, further west, a few sighs of relief as Hurricane Douglas passed just north of the western end of the Hawaiian island chain Sunday night. Forecasters said early Monday that hurricane warnings, though, still remain in effect for Oahu and Kauai. Douglas is a Category 1 storm with top sustained winds at 85 miles per hour. Any landfall would be just the third in Hawaii in modern history. The body of Congressman John Lewis on Sunday crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, one last time. It's where he and hundreds of other civil rights protesters were stopped and beaten by state and local police in March of 1965. Of the beating he sustained when he was just 25, John Lewis once said, I gave a little blood on that bridge. I thought I was going to die. The memorial event on Sunday, which organizers called the Final Crossing, was part of a multi-day celebration of John Lewis's life. Bloody Sunday helped galvanize support for the Civil Rights Act of 1965 and became a central part of Lewis's legacy. John Lewis, who died just over a week ago after a six-month battle with cancer, is lying in state in the U.S. Capitol on Monday. Some breaking news Monday afternoon on the coronavirus front. Robert O'Brien, Donald Trump's national security advisor, has tested positive for COVID-19, making him the highest profile Trump official to get the virus. They say it's unclear how O'Brien was exposed to the virus or how much in-person contact he's had recently with Donald Trump. Anyone who's near the president is tested regularly for the disease. Meanwhile, we learned that Google will keep its employees home until at least July of 2021, making the search engine giant the first major U.S. corporation to formalize such an extended timetable in the face of the coronavirus pandemic. The move will affect nearly all of the roughly 200,000 full-time and contract employees across Google's parent company, Alphabet Inc., and will likely pressure other technology giants that have slated staff to return as soon as January. As I mentioned earlier, I'm coming to you from Florida, where the Washington Post just reported one out of every 52 Floridians has been infected with the coronavirus. Wow. More information is coming to light about the clearing of Lafayette Square before Donald Trump's trek across the street to hold up a Bible in front of a church. Now, the Washington Post is reporting that an Army National Guard commander who witnessed protesters being forcibly removed from Lafayette Square that night is contradicting claims by the Attorney General and the Trump administration that they did not speed up the clearing to make way for Trump's photo opportunity minutes later. A new statement by Adam DeMarco, an Iraq veteran who now serves as a major in the D.C. National Guard, also cast doubt on the claims by acting Park Police Chief Gregory Monahan that violence by protesters spurred the Park Police to clear the area at that time with unusually aggressive tactics. DeMarco said that, quote, demonstrators were behaving peacefully and that tear gas was deployed in an excessive use of force. DeMarco is now scheduled to testify Tuesday before the House Natural Resources Committee. DVR alert. And remember the fallout from last week with outgoing Republican Florida Congressman Ted Yoho. Yoho, Yoho. Well, 
Bread of the World, which is a nonpartisan Christian organization that focuses on ending hunger, said Saturday that they asked Yoho to resign from its board of directors in the wake of what they called his verbal attack on Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez last week on the steps of the Capitol. In a statement, the organization said Yoho's, quote, recent actions and words, as reported in the media, are not reflective of the ethical standards of members of our board of directors. Yoho, 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 obliged with the request. And I love how some in the press are reporting it as Yoho resigned from the board. He was asked to resign. AOC confirmed reports that Yoho directed a profane, sexist insult at her after the two briefly crossed paths last Monday. Yoho sickeningly denied using the language and instead expressed regret for his abrupt manner during the exchange. I'm not sure that this qualifies as a news story because I think it's just confirmation of something we already knew. But Dan Balls writes in the Washington Post, America's global standing is at a low point. The pandemic made it worse. He goes on to say, America's standing in the world is at a low ebb. Once described as the indispensable nation, the United States is now seen as withdrawn and inward looking, a reluctant and unreliable partner at a dangerous moment for the world. The coronavirus pandemic has only made things worse. President Trump shattered a 70-year consensus among U.S. presidents of both political parties that was grounded in the principle of robust American leadership in the world through alliances and multilateral institutions. For decades, this approach was seen at home and abroad as good for the world and good for the United States. In its place, Trump has substituted his America First doctrine and what his critics say is a zero-sum game sensibility about international relationships. America First has been described variously as nationalistic, populistic, isolationist, and unilateralist. The president has demeaned allies and emboldened adversaries such as China and Russia. Again, not really news, but confirmation. November 3rd, please come already. And because I'd hate to end this segment on a sour note, I thought I'd play you a little song. I like to share what I call funnies at the beginning of my show, because invariably the subject matter turns so serious that I think if we start the program with a laugh or two, it'll help us get through the rest of the hour. So we'll share one here. This song comes from a woman named Lauren Mayer, who writes, performs, and produces these wonderful videos. She does one or two a week. And well, they sort of speak for themselves. You can find Lauren Mayer on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, you know, all the usual suspects. Just type in Lauren Mayer. And here, well, she has a little lesson for us. Take it away, Lauren Mayer. Hello, boys and girls. Here's a way to remember some very important words. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, stable genius. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, hydroxychloroquine. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, kofefi. This great accomplishment proves you're as smart as the president. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, anonymous. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, hamburgers. 
person, woman, man, camera, TV, totalitarianism. Get all these words correct, then you can boast about your intellect. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, smocking gun. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, global whamming. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, oranges of the investigation. Claim you've got the best words, then you can make statements that are for the birds. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, suburban housewives. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, Ghislaine Maxwell. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, it is what it is. With more statements like that, you could make your own campaign go splat. (laughs) Again, her name is Lauren Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R. Do check out some of her other songs because they're equally as timely, topical, and laughter-inducing. Still to come on the show, a look back at something that happened three years ago tonight that is responsible for, oh, many lives being saved. And next, I told you I live in South Florida. Florida has now been named the Global Pandemic Epicenter. Oi, Florida. So coming up next, we'll check in with an old acquaintance of mine, somebody I haven't spoken to in a while, who is now the mayor of Miami Beach. Dan Gelber is my guest coming up. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, your guest host today, filling in for Brad and Desi on the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. You're listening to The Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, and I come to you from South Florida. Florida, as I refer to it. Now the global epicenter of the pandemic. And one of the hardest hit areas of Florida is South Florida and Miami-Dade County. So joining me on the line right now is Dan Gelber. He is the mayor of Miami Beach. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for being here today. Happy to be here, Nicole. Nice, nice to see you again. Nice to see you, too. It's been a long time. Um, uh, it was, what, over 10 years ago when you used to frequently guest on the Jim DeFeedy show when I was producer on WINZ in Miami when we had a progressive talk station in South Florida. Seems like a right. lifetime ago. Uh, things aren't quite as progressive as they used to be. No, unfortunately, yeah. but hopefully we can change that. So uh, I haven't spoken to you, obviously, since you've become mayor of Miami Beach. So 
congratulations, I think, because what what a time to be mayor of a big city, first of all, dealing with the pandemic, with uh, with COVID-19. And and in Miami-Dade County, it seems like you're almost out there alone, surrounded by a lot of elected officials who who don't seem to want to uh, acknowledge reality. Well, it's interesting. Um, The breakdown goes something like this. The local government gets it because we have to, you know, we sort of see it. Uh, State government, I think, is not getting it. And the federal government has been the worst. What's really gone on in this thing is, um, I don't know, I don't know if you're old enough, Nicole, to remember the Mikey uh, commercial with. uh, Oh, live cereal. Mikey, he'll eat anything. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm old enough. um, what happened? Yeah, I knew that. Um, I know, you, know. The, you know, what basically happens now is the federal government is not certainly President Trump has not wanted to make a tough call. He's not want to tell people uh, what they don't want to hear. He wants to give good news and not bad news. So he sort of pushed to the governors all of the obligations to tell you know residents that you've got to wear masks, you've got to be socially distanced to close things down. You can't go to restaurants or maybe even beaches. So they pushed that to the governors. And in our state, the governor sort of pushed it down the table to the kids sitting at the end of the table, which turns out to be the mayors and commissioners and giving them the job to sort of deliver the bad news or to ask people to take the difficult medicine. Um, And so we've been doing that. And I have found a lot of my colleagues, Democrats and Republicans, frankly, have been pretty good about trying to get it right. But we've gotten no help with regard to that part of the leadership equation, uh, really from obviously from the, the president and a, a much limited amount from the governor who has sort of just left it to us, but won't even implement a mask order, which would probably make our jobs a lot easier. Yeah, I've you know, in, in the in the uh, tradition of Donald Trump, I've come up with a nickname for our governor instead of Ron DeSantis. He's Ron Death Sentence. Um, uh, you don't have to laugh at that, but I think it's funny um, because if we, we don't laugh, we cry. Um, should we have a mandatory mask policy here in the state of Florida? Of course we should. We should have one nationally. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, here's here's what's going on. And you got to really think about it this way. You know, right now we're trying to control the spread of a virus that has two to three week lagging indicators. So whatever we do now, we're stuck with baked into the system. And so it's very hard politically to tell people wear a mask uh, now so that you don't have a problem in two to three weeks. It's, it's hard to prove a negative didn't happen. So it's really requires a level of leadership and courage because you're asking people to take, to make a sacrifice that you're never going to be able to prove to them was necessary if it works. Right. And instead we're waiting for all of the numbers to go up, the virus to spike. And then we're saying, okay, now we'll shelter in place and now we'll wear a mask. But of course, by that point, the thousands of people that have tested positive, a percentage of of that surge is going to be in the hospital and a smaller percentage will be in intensive care and a smaller percentage, but all significant numbers will be on ventilators and about half of those people will, will perish. So it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's become really this terrible cycle uh, of both medicine and a lack of leadership that we're in right now. And if we had a mask order, well, then we would we would be sending a message to people that they need to take care of this. And I am certain just, uh, you know, that, that the governor and the president have a certain number of people, 
maybe about a third who will listen to them mm-hmm. uh, to the, you know, frankly, to the extent, you know, when not other people like me, I'm spending the last week, we, we put our mask order in the day the CDC said, put a mask on. We did it that day, minutes after the, April 3rd, we put in a mandatory mask order indoors and some places outdoors. And since then, we've expanded it and added fines and things like that. And for the 109 days or 10 days since that April 3rd order, I've been almost fighting with people who don't want to wear it, don't think they need to wear it, think it's a political statement, think I'm a communist because I want them to wear a mask <laughs> or a fascist, depends right, upon right. the group I'm talking to. And it would be a lot easier if we all got on the same page. And I guess that's my biggest concern is that the failure of the governor to say, wear a mask or be fined, the failure of the president to say, wear a mask, it's important and patriotic. And uh, until all that happens, we're fighting with people. And in any other natural uh, disaster, like a hurricane, we all get on the same page and we tell people, hunker down or, or leave town or whatever we tell them to do. And when someone doesn't evacuate, nobody says, well, uh, I, don't, I don't think you need to. Right. That's I mean, personal it's, choice. Right. <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's just sort of like it's a it's a science medical medical health based decision. It's too dangerous to be in your house because we think meteorologically the hurricane's coming here. Well, we think it's too dangerous to not wear a mask in public to for for the community you live in. So I don't get it. I think it would help immensely. But I guess right now the 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 president and the governor would like to be the people that open up everything and they'd like us to to be the ones who uh, deliver the, the the news about having to swallow tough medicine, uh, which I'm prepared to do. But at least I wish they would not give messaging that you don't need to take the medicine. Right. That doesn't help me do my job. No, not at all. And again, we're speaking with Dan Gelber. He's the mayor of Miami Beach. For those who are not in South Florida, they, they may not get the distinction. Miami Beach is definitely separate from the city of Miami. And, uh, you know, the, the hospitals in Miami-Dade County, we're, I'm in Broward, are, are, we're hearing our um, the, the ICUs are filled to like 122% of capacity, at least most of them. Um, we had a stay-at-home order for about a month, and people pretty much stuck to it. I'm still staying at home up here because I, I prefer to be safe. Um, do you think that it, it, we might get to the point where we need another stay-at-home order? Would you consider doing that? Could you do it in Miami Beach alone if the rest of the county doesn't do it? Uh, my manager and our commission could uh, issue. We were the first city. We we sheltered in home. We had the order before any other city in Florida. Wow. Same thing with our mask order. We've sort of been ahead. We also uh, we, we closed our beaches before anybody else. And we were also the last to open everything up, even though uh, they opened up the state. And in fact, the county, a little bit later, we waited to, two weeks after that, along with the city of Miami, to actually start opening other things up. So we've been pretty slow. We've been quick to respond and slow uh, to emerge, uh, but of course it's it, it you know it's it, it doesn't really matter with this virus because it's pernicious and the compliance has been spotty to say the least. To answer your question, well, of course we're going to consider it because you know it's it's an it's a very interesting thing, and I think about this a lot because these are decisions I never thought. I mean, I never thought as a mayor I'd be deciding and talking about mass casualty issues right. like this. But that's what they really are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the issues has been that 
hospital capacity was told, was presented to us at the beginning of this by the CDC as sort of a hard stop in terms of if you, if you reach, you don't have any more ventilators, if you don't mm-hmm. have any more PPE, if you don't have enough intensive care uh, beds, you've got a got a shelter in place because we know that stops the spread and that's how you protect your hospital system's ability uh, to care for people. Well, you know, what has happened over the last three or four months is we have increased our hospital capacity. So right now we have plenty of ventilators. Mm -hmm. We can convert intensive care beds. We're past our our limit, but we can convert them if we can find the staff for them and the staff can stay uh, healthy themselves uh, because there's a lot of burnout and and peril in being a, a medical professional. Absolutely. So we could probably increase our capacity greatly, but at some point we have to say to ourselves, that's not really the goal here. Because if the goal is to simply be able to process more people down this assembly line of bad stuff, then we've forgotten that this is human suffering that's happening. It's not just about being efficient in uh, in providing care, but more importantly about stopping people from needing the care in the first place. And so I've been sort of talking to the other mayors pretty regularly about saying one of the metrics can't, you know, that can't be the only metric, the hospital capacity, because right. we get good at it. All that means is that we've now, you know, doubled the number of people on ventilators. Well, half of those are going to die. So that's not a good thing. So I guess my point is that the most important thing to me is that we stop the spread of the virus and we bring it down. And if we have to shelter in place because we can't do it through any other means, we will. By the way, if everybody wore a mask and everybody exercised physical distancing wouldn't need to. and everybody got on the same page, we, we I don't think we would need to ever shelter yeah. in place. But that's not been happening. So it may be we need to soon. Wow. And Dan Gilbert, when I at the beginning, when I said I'm not sure if I should congratulate you or not, because you have some unique challenges as mayor of Miami Beach. That is, we are now in hurricane season. And if there were not a pandemic going on, the, the prospect of a major storm hitting South Florida is really dangerous, as it is at high tide. Many of the streets in Miami Beach are underwater. Um, Miami Beach is basically a barrier island. This is with climate change and everything else. This is really scary times. What what kind of plans do you have in place should a major storm come our way in the next month? Well, you've talked you touched upon both short and and long term Mm -hmm. challenges. The Mm -hmm. short term challenge of a hurricane season during a pandemic is pretty daunting. Uh, We have already spoken with um, the head of emergency management for the state. In fact, he appeared at our last city commission meeting to talk precisely about what's being done and what plans are being made. I mean, we've got to be aware of the fact that we have uh, populations, some that are more infirm than others because of of this. We've got uh, vulnerable populations that need to be moved possibly uh, you know, and that are typically ones that we have to move because they're hard to reach, uh, you know, if there is an evacuation. So they are looking at where you bring people during a pandemic, how you test them quickly. So you could put a group presumably in a hotel somewhere on another coast where they would be safe. Uh, so those are the things we're thinking about because typically we can't just send everybody to a shelter Mm-mm. because if you send a vulnerable population there, uh, you've got am- amazing problems. And uh, so that's that's going to be the challenge, I think, more than anything, is how we protect vulnerable populations uh, in a storm when we would typically move them somewhere. Um, and, and they've always been 
uh, of concern. We saw tragically how many uh, perished uh, when they were sent to places that lost electricity and, you know, and, yeah. uh, and it was too hot and eventually they died needlessly. Yep. I mean, so that's what we have to avoid. But we are uh, planning for it. Um, on the long term, I have a resiliency meeting with my commission on Friday. We're not stopping. We've been leading on this. We're raising our streets. We're putting pumps in. We're doing what we need to do. Uh, we are a barrier island built out of limestone. The water just comes right up. We have sunny day flooding. But yep. where we have uh, raised streets, and we've raised about six miles of streets, uh, we don't have uh, sunny day flooding or even as much flooding when there are rain events. So we we know the system we have is working. We just have to continue and not uh, and not stop uh, our effort to enhance our resiliency. Well, Dan Gelber, I don't envy you what you have on your plate right now, but I'm glad you're there handling it. So uh, I'm thankful for that. The other thing, and, uh, you know, I remember when you were uh, uh, you were toying with the idea of running for the Senate. Now, now you've been in the state Senate. You've been in the state House. You've been you're now the mayor of Miami Beach. Um, in two years, we need to get rid of our governor. Any chance you might want to jump into that, Frey? Listen, I... Um, <laughs> I'm really happy. I love being at home. I still have a kid in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I love being in my community. I'm very happy here. Um, I've, I've spent time in Tallahassee. It's a, mm-hmm. it's, you know, people just assume if there's a, a, a higher office that everyone in political life wants to get it. And the truth of the matter is there are a lot of other things that, you know, give me satisfaction and give me, uh, and being around my wife, being around my children who are around the house all the time oh, yeah. now. Um, and I have two college age daughters. So, you know, frankly, running anything would be easy when you've gone through teenagers. <laughs> I hear um, you. We have I, kids the same age. Mine turned 21 in, in quarantine. So she's here yeah. too. Yeah. I like being at home and I like being in my community. And, uh, and you know, I don't like what is happening statewide right mm-hmm. now, but I, I really like, I like my, I like, I feel very privileged. I know it's a hard hand everybody's been dealt, but I'm, you know, it's not harder for me. In fact, it's easier for me because I can afford some of the things that a lot of people can't afford right mm-hmm. now. And so, you know, frankly, the decisions are very difficult. But the, you know, if someone said, and then whenever anybody says, I'm sorry, you have to go through this, I'm, I think to myself, I'm fortunate, I'm much more fortunate than virtually so many other people who are unemployed, who have food insecurity, have health insecurity. Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, I feel very blessed and privileged that I have this job. So, Nicole, thanks for uh, uh, getting, getting back with you. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to catch up with you. And hopefully when things calm down, we can spend more time. I really appreciate you jumping on with us today to fill us in on what's going on. And I really appreciate the job you're doing. Dan Gelber, mayor of Miami Beach. You're awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Nicole. Dan Gelber, mayor of Miami Beach, Florida. So July 27th marks an important anniversary in the fight for health care for Americans. We'll revisit what happened three years ago in just a moment. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hi, 
This is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Don't let us get sick. Don't let us get old. Don't let us get stupid. All right. Just make us be brave and make us play nice. Let us be together tonight. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi, who are taking a day off to get in some additional social distancing. You can usually find me over at NicoleSandler.com, where I host a live show weekdays at 5 Eastern, 2 Pacific, and have tons of content there that you can browse through and listen at your convenience. It's a good shelter-at-home time killer if you're looking for something to fill some time. So I kid about social distancing, but there's nothing funny about the situation we find ourselves in. That said, we are very lucky that one Republican did what was necessary to ensure that millions more of us are not suddenly uninsured and uninsurable. I want to share with you a quick news report from July 28th, 2017. Three years ago, this is from CBS News reporting on a very important vote that happened in the early, early morning hours or late the night before, depending on how you want to look at it. CBS News Chief Congressional Correspondent Nancy Cordes joins me now from Capitol Hill. Nancy, what a night. Take us through Senator McCain's dramatic vote and how that all unfolded. It was unbelievable, Maggie. You know, I've seen a lot of dramatic moments here on Capitol Hill over the years, but nothing that played out quite like this. Uh, you know, normally with a bill that is this important, you have a pretty clear idea, at least, you know, once the vote starts, whether the party in power has the votes it needs or not. In this situation, that was absolutely not the case. And you could see from their body language that senators on the floor themselves didn't know where things stood. And over the course of this vote, you had uh, Vice President Pence, you had Senate Leader Mitch McConnell, others trying to convince the holdouts, most notably John McCain, to switch. And Pence and and McCain were locked in a discussion for quite a while. Um, And clearly, in the end, nothing came of it. And Pence, who had come here to Capitol Hill thinking that he was going to have to cast a tie-breaking vote uh, on this health care bill discovered that his services really weren't needed. At one point, uh, Pence left the floor and then McCain did too, uh, leading many to assume that probably what was going on was that Pence was calling the president to tell him that they were one vote shy um, and then the president asking to talk to McCain himself. Uh, But as you can imagine, uh, the president at this point probably has limited ability to sway someone like John McCain. This is someone who the president uh, said a year ago or more was not
not a hero, that he didn't consider him a hero because he had been captured and had multiple opportunities to walk that back. His aides have been asked about it a lot recently, and each time they refused to take it back. Uh, so as you can imagine, the relationship between those two men is uh, pretty strained. Uh, and McCain said after the vote that uh, this was a shell of a bill, and that's something that a lot of his Republican Senate, fellow Republican senators openly admitted uh, that it, it wasn't good policy. Uh, they claimed that you just needed to get something over to a negotiation with the House of Representatives and then the bill would become much better uh, in the process of talks with uh, House Republicans. But what McCain argued and what uh, the two other Republican holdouts, uh, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins argued, was that there was really nothing to guarantee, Meg, that if those talks with the House fell apart, say, a month from now, uh, that the House couldn't just scoop up skinny repeal, the bill that the Senate uh, was about to pass, and pass it themselves and send it to the president's desk. And he said that was a risk that was just too great. Well, it certainly unfolded in dramatic fashion, as you pointed out. So now the big question, now that this repeal and replace plan is essentially dead, are there any options left for Republicans here? You know, the Senate has moved on. Uh, Republican leader Mitch McConnell announced in the wee hours of the morning they're moving on to defense spending. So there will be no more attempts, at least not for right now, in the Senate to try to cobble together some kind of package that they think can get 51 votes. Uh, they were actually ready to throw in the towel, frankly, a week ago, Meg, but then the president called all of the Senate Republicans to the White House uh, and said that they need to do better, that they've made this promise to the American people and they need to keep it. And so that sort of sent them scrambling back to the drawing table to figure out if there was something else that they hadn't thought of, some other kind of package, and that's how they landed on this uh, skinny repeat bill. Uh, but at this point, they have pretty much exhausted their legislative options. Uh, this is going to be a, a bitter disappointment to Republicans in the House of Representatives who did manage to pass their own reform bill back in May by one vote. Uh, that was a tortured process at we as well, but they did get it uh, through the House at the end of the day, and they have just been watching and waiting this Senate process drag on. The Senate Republicans hated the House bill so much, Meg, that they said they were ripping it up and starting over, and they claimed that they could do far better. But in the end, they really weren't able to come up with anything that could get uh, 50 out of the 52 Republican senators to sign on. It was three years ago. It was July 27th, 2017, or maybe it was July 28th when this actually happened. Mr. Portman. Yeah, that's the sound of John McCain walking out from the chamber behind the, the Senate floor and walking over to the table when they were counting votes and putting his thumb down, signifying that he was not uh, he was voting against the skinny repeal of the Affordable Care Act. My, how time flies, huh? Joining us on the line now is Laura Packard. She's a Democratic consultant, an activist, a health care advocate who, like me, is a cancer survivor. And Laura, well, how, how are you doing? Let's, let's start there. Uh, I'm doing great. I'm in remission and uh, my oncologist is happy. Awesome. That's great news. It'll be four years for me. It was four years ago last week that I was diagnosed with lung cancer, and it'll be four years the end of August 
that I've had surgery and I'm cancer free. So I got that going for me. You and I both went through our fights at almost the same time, and we both have something else in common, that the only reason we were covered was because of the Affordable Care Act, right? Yeah, I, I don't want to speak for you, but mm-hmm. I, I believe you're also, you're, you work for yourself, right? Yes, I'm self-employed, and before the ACA, I used to have junk insurance. So if mm. I still had junk insurance when I was diagnosed, today I would be bankrupt or dead. Wow. Yeah. And and actually, before the ACA, um, I was unable to get insurance because although I hadn't yet had lung cancer, I did have pre-existing conditions. And, and it's such a, a ridiculous notion that you could not, m- most companies wouldn't insure you or would use as an excuse to drop you if they found out you had a pre-existing condition. And it could be something as simple as acne when you were a teenager and it wasn't in your application when you applied for the insurance? Mm-hmm, exactly. It's astounding. And so now, you know, we, we both acknowledge, I think, that the Affordable Care Act is far from perfect. But without it, you and I might not be here today, number one. And number two, the fact that insurance companies could drop you for such a reason, or could choose not to cover you, or could sell you junk insurance. I mean, now it seems sort of unthinkable. But if if this Trump administration gets its way, that's what we'll go back to because they're still fighting to overturn the 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 entirety of the ACA. Exactly. Uh, in fact, there's a case before the Supreme Court right now that threatens the entire Affordable Care Act. But as we saw three years ago, we were this close. If, if John McCain had not voted to stop repeal, it, it would have passed the Senate and it certainly would have passed the House and Trump would have signed it into law. Right. So to refresh everyone's memories, and I I admit when when you told me that this was the anniversary, I I had to go back and to to realize how long it was in its three years and to to remember the specifics. And John McCain was actually the third no vote. Um, He followed Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. Right. But we needed three so it wouldn't pass. It came down to John McCain's vote. And it was what, at like two or three o'clock in the morning? Um, it, it happened late that night of the 27th. Um, yeah. and it sort of depends on what time zone you were in. Oh, right. Uh, I'm on the East coast, but, and, but in DC, it was, it was <laughs> like two or three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And, um, if it, John, it was not, we didn't, there weren't enough votes with just Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. Uh, it, then it would have been 50, 50 and Pence would have come in and, and broken the tie. Uh-huh. So when we needed John McCain to step up and thankfully he did. Right. Uh, and, and nobody knew until he walked out and put his thumb down that that's what he was going to do. That's why I played that gasp right at the, at the start of our conversation <laughs> here, because it was such a moment. And you, you heard some of the members started clapping. And I think Schumer shot like the evil eye, like, don't you dare. Um, and and they, they all stopped because... Yeah. And, and um, but uh, <laughs> uh, and then everything kind of went I mean, they, it was already in hell, but things got even worse, I think, because, um, well, you had Lindsey Graham. L- listen to what Lindsey Graham said after, uh, after the vote. He said this. The skinny bill as policy is a disaster. The skinny bill as a replacement for Obamacare is a fraud. 
The skinny bill is a vehicle to get in conference to find a replacement. It is not a replacement in of itself. So the skinny bill is what it was called because it wasn't they, they were just looking to do away with the Affordable Care Act, but they didn't have a replacement for it. <laughs> this is typical of the Republicans. Yes. Mm-hmm. They and now today they've had 10 years and they still haven't figured it out. But the scary part is that the people that were voting three years ago, such as Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Cory Gartner, my senator, and Senator Tom Tillis and Senator Steve Daines, all of the Senate besides uh, Murkowski, Collins and McCain voted for this travesty. And if given another opportunity, they'll do it again. Right. And the thing, as you said, they had no bill. They had no health care plan. And when asked about that again, because here we are, it's three years later, they still have no Republican plan. But um, the, the Trump administration is still trying to get the, the what's left standing of the Affordable Care Act overturned by the Supreme Court. They were in court just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and when asked about it, Trump said, oh, we'll come up with something. Like in in two weeks, he's going to have a new plan when they haven't done it in all these years. Yes, uh, they keep saying in two weeks or next week or next <laughs> month, and really they mean never. It's astounding, um, and yet here we are. Let me ask you this, Laura Packard. Um, uh, at a time like this, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. I don't know about you, but I honestly haven't left my house except to walk my dog around the block or go to a doctor's appointment since March 22nd. And I'm in South Florida, which right now is one of the epicenters. Mm. But the thought that an administration, a, a, a White House, would even consider killing off what health insurance uh, uh, millions of Americans are able to get and while we're going through this is just astounding to me. I mean, I call it opposite world. We're in opposite world. How could they even think of that? So Joe Biden hopefully will be elected on November 3rd. I'm knocking on wood laminate here. And um, do we know what his plans are? I mean, he says he'll expand the Affordable Care Act with a public option, but he's not into Medicare for all. Uh, yes, but I think uh, whatever, if, if, Joe Biden is elected, and if we were are able to flip the Senate, uh, then I think uh, what uh, legislation will get passed is what people push for. Uh, so this election is not the finish line; it's the start. Oh, absolutely, and and it's a big if here. Um, if Biden doesn't win. And if the Democrats don't take back the Senate, then we're really screwed because they will have four more years of Trump running roughshod and he will be able to get uh, the Affordable Care Act thrown out. I mean, I I hate to even contemplate it, but they're talking about, God forbid, something happens and they have another Supreme Court seat to fill, even if it happens during a lame duck session, meaning even if... Biden wins the election, but it's before January 20th, they would push to confirm another Trump nominee to the Supreme Court, which is just astounding when you think back of what they did to Obama in his last year in office and Merrick Garland. And, mm-hmm. um, it, it, but they are, you know, hypocrisy is their name and they will stop at nothing. I can't even believe I'm saying the words. It's like they want to kill Americans. They want us not to have health insurance. They want us not to be able to see a doctor when we get sick. 
it, it just makes no sense. Well, uh, tax breaks for the rich are more important than our lives. Unbelievable. Now, you're, you're in Colorado. When, when this whole fight was going on, while you were fighting the cancer, you were in Nevada, weren't you? Mm-hmm. I moved to Colorado at the beginning of 2018 because uh, I knew that the Affordable Care Act uh, was being fought over in court and I needed to live in a state that had good protections for people with pre-existing conditions on the state level. So at the time, there were four states to pick from and I chose Colorado. Nice. I could think of a lot worse places to live. I love Colorado. It's beautiful there. Um, And uh, well, hopefully you'll get rid of uh, Cory Gardner, although you guys elected the wrong uh, nominee in the the primary. I'm sorry. I think Andrew Romanoff would have made a better senator than uh, Hickenlooper, but uh, I'll I'll take the Democratic vote if, you know, if you can get that done for us, we'll we'll take it. Um, so, so Laura, you work as a strategist, as a consultant to uh, progressive organizations and democratic groups and stuff. What are you doing to commemorate this third anniversary of John McCain's thumbs down? Uh, well, I am going to be a part of a town hall tonight at six o'clock Eastern. Tonight, uh, Monday night, with Protect Our Care, um, including uh, senators. Tammy Baldwin, Debbie Stabenow, uh, Bob Casey, and Amy Klobuchar, and some other fantastic healthcare activists like Elena Hung of Little Lobbyists and Ben Wickler, who is now the chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. Oh, he oh, is. Oh, my Simone goodness. From I- on the bus. Oh, nice. Sister Simone. <laughs> oh, nice. I didn't know that about Ben Wickler, chairman of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. That's awesome. And will this be archived anywhere? Because this show airs at different times in different places. So I'm afraid, actually, by the time most people hear it, this will already have happened. So do you know if, if people can go to yes. where can they find it? It'll be on Facebook at facebook.com slash protect our care. OK, and then what can what can we do other than vote for the Democrats and, and flip the flip the Senate and uh, get the interloper out of the White House um, uh, to start getting things back on track and save our health care. Anything else people should be doing to protect the Affordable Care Act? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, pay attention to how your elected officials vote and hold them accountable this November and tell your story. Make sure that people remember what happened three years ago and that it will happen again, depending on uh, what people do this November. Because as you mentioned, it's been three years and during this pandemic, every single month feels like another year. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, people may have forgotten how close we came to people with pre-existing conditions losing their health care. And now with 4 million Americans diagnosed with COVID-19 and who knows how many more, uh, would all of those people uh, be able to keep their health insurance or will that also be a pre-existing condition? Uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, and the fact that, again, we are the only I, I don't want to say civilized nation. We, as Bernie Sanders puts it, we're the only major country in the world that doesn't um, guarantee health care as a human right to its citizens. And the fact that they can deny you care, even after you've paid into the system for however long because of what they call a pre-existing condition, is just, it's unconscionable. It's inhumane. And yet this is 
where Republicans are going. And and on top of it, they do the Donald Trump thing where they look you in the eye and say, oh, I'll protect pre-existing conditions when um, no, Mm -hmm. nothing they've done or said or acted on proves (laughs) anything of the sort. Right. I mean, they're lying to us, to you, to them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So these are the things we have to keep in mind. And again, it all comes down to November 3rd. And so I always caution my listeners, I know you're going to vote, right? But what you need to do is call that sister, brother, cousin, uh, old, old high school friend who, you know, maybe uh, isn't as involved and make sure they vote and make sure they vote the right way. Because it is, this is a matter of life and death. And Laura, I'm so glad you're doing well. I, I tell my story all the time because I think it's that important. And every time I tell my story, I make sure to say, if not for the Affordable Care Act, I wouldn't have had insurance. I was self-employed at the time. I already had a, um, a, a cancer, I had two. I had two uh, skin cancers. I had a melanoma. So that alone made me uninsurable. And so without the Affordable Care Act and those protections, uh, I probably wouldn't be here today either. So, and now with COVID, the the thought that they could even even consider the fact that they didn't open up the Affordable Care Act to uh, open enrollment when once COVID hit is unconscionable because there's so many people lost their jobs and now are uninsured. Do we know mm-hmm. how many more people are uninsured because of the uh, the massive layoffs that have happened since the since the pandemic? We don't, but it's millions of Americans. And if they had opened up for a special enrollment period uh, so people could buy in, at least they'd be covered. But now I saw a story down here of a guy who was hospitalized and got home and had a, um, a, a hospital bill for over a million dollars, you know, that could make you actually not want to fight to live if, if you get sick. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, it's a good day to remember what is at stake and what we could have lost three years ago today. And even though the Affordable Care Act isn't perfect, it's a good first step towards where we want to go. And it's going to be a, a very long fought battle. But, you know, hopefully we'll get there. Um, Laura Packard, thank you so much. Thanks for reminding us of what happened three years ago today. And thanks for all your work on the, on the subject. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, always happy to be your guest host for a day or two here and there. While Brad and Desi take some time off, they will be back for the next episode of the broadcast to keep you posted on what's going on in our crazy world. As always, you can find me at NicoleSandler.com anytime, any day. Come check it out. Until next time, I leave you with the immortal words of Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.